All right, morning, everyone. It's good to see you, and it's good to be sharing our uh, second part of the introduction to the book of Luke. And um, last week we started off and uh, we looked at the first part of chapter one, and we're today going to look at the second half of chapter one. And Luke has the clear intention of wanting to ensure that we are up to date and fully abreast of all that took place concerning Jesus. And so, as we look today, we're going to be looking at some lyrical encouragement. Some lyrical encouragement. Now, when you think back to um, songs that you've enjoyed... Um, at, at any time, um, and especially maybe in more recent years, um, don't you find it's common that those songs contain elements of old songs, samples, or, or maybe what they might call interpolations, if, you're, if you want a, 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 a music technical term. The difference between a sample and an interpolation, not interpretation, but interpolation, is the fact that a sample will use an aspect of the original sound recording in the new piece, in the new creation. An interpolation won't use part of an original sound recording, but it will use part of an original song. So it might be as if a band were playing and then they just went into another song, medleyed into another song. Because it's actually being played live, that would be considered an interpolation as opposed to a sample because there was no recording involved. But nonetheless, they're doing the same thing. They are drawing on old songs to spice up their new. And sometimes when artists do that, they do that because they know that old song was popular and they want to make their new one have, have a bit of sizzle. They want to, you know, catch people's ear with it. Sometimes they also do it, because I think most artists would do it for that reason, but sometimes they also do it because actually they rate the original highly. And so it's, it's a form of tribute. It's a form of, yeah, I know old school music just because I'm a new school artist and I know, I know where, the, where the greats are at and here's a little example just to demonstrate to you that, you know, I've got some depth. <laughs> yeah, and there, there are a multitude. In fact, there was a, I, I had a quick look. The hip-hop as a genre is known for using samples. And um, there, there is a, a break, a hip-hop break, that is most commonly known as the funky drum, which would have <laughs> come from James Brown. But there is another quite similar break that is actually the most sampled break in music history. O over 8,000 times it's been used in, in other songs. And it sounds very similar. And you know what the, 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 the song is called? 
that it comes from. I don't think anyone would ever get this. Cup, what? <laughs> this brother, are you a secret DJ on the sly, bro? <laughs> Digging in the crates. Oh, your Google's working good this morning. Uh, Wi-Fi is fast today, yeah? <laughs> the song is actually called Amen, Brother. Imagine that. And it's, it's true that actually a lot of classic gospel songs have been used as samples. Um, one one I, I, didn't, I wasn't aware, um, there's a Mary J song, Mary J Blige, with um, Method Man. All I need. All I need to get by. Uh, you know that original is a gospel tune. The original is a gospel tune. Listen. Come like the church ain't setting trends out here. <laughs> Praise God. And so in musical history, we see in our own life and times, uh, lots of songs that are used, but it's nothing new. You know, Solomon said, well, let's say, in Ecclesiastes it is said, if you believe Solomon to be the author, as I do, but anyway, um, there is nothing new under the sun. And we're going to look at a song and a spoken word today, um, both forms of um, lyrical presentation. Um, both forms of poetic presentation that draw heavily on samples from yesteryear, from previous times. And that with intention. The intention is not just to show that they kind of, you know, they got some roots, they got history, like our brother done. But actually, to draw our attention to those references because so often we hear about samples and then we kind of those who are curious go and look for the original and uh, and actually often are very pleasantly surprised and so we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1 and we're going to be going from verses 39 to 80 um, and looking at two forms of lyrical encouragement for our souls so I'm going to uh, pray, and then I'll read the sections as we encounter them. Lord, we thank you so much for the, the joy of being together, the privilege of being together. Um, even now, Lord, we spare a thought for those who are um, they're, they're meeting in secret uh, around this world because they are persecuted. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them in their situation. And Lord, we pray that you would impart to us some of the richness of their faith some of the richness of their fellowship, despite um, meeting in secret in small numbers, um, they, are, they have a clear sense of meeting with you. And this is what we desire today, that we would meet with you through your word. And that, Lord, you would speak to us by your spirit. And that, Lord, we would be encouraged and strengthened in your name. Amen. So, uh, I mentioned this is the second part of the introduction. It's considered that the first two chapters of 
the book of Luke are actually his introduction. And we see his journalistic in, um, diligence as, as an investigative journalist. We see his diligence in that he is presenting to us uh, an extended and prolonged account, and the only account that we have concerning the birth, not only of Jesus, but also John the Baptist. And we get a sense that Luke is moving in the method of even that which we regard to be um, thorough investigative journalism today. Uh, I, I mentioned that I recently um, had the, the blessing of going to South Korea and meeting Christian leaders there and, um, and seeing the, the work among the church there and being very inspired. And right towards the end of my trip, um, I met with a journalist from uh, a, one of the, the, the dailies, one of the national daily papers, which was actually, it's, it's a Christian paper um, set up by, I think it was actually Paul Yonggi Cho and the Full Gospel Church probably the biggest church in South Korea. Some will be familiar with that name. And um, they had set that up years ago, and it's now one of the top four um, daily newspapers. And so at the end of the conversation, you know, we kind of sign off, and he says, um, I'm not quite sure when this will be published, got a bit more work to do, and then we'll, um, you know, let you know. And when I was talking with my colleague, who's from South Korea, um, David Sung Tae Kim, he said, you know, he's a proper journalist, you know. And I was like, okay, what do you mean by that when you say that? He said, yeah, yeah, because he's a journalist that he's not just going to sit down and do an interview with you and take your word for it, but he's going to go and follow up and interview people that you've mentioned to see that you've actually, you say that you've met this person, okay, I'll, that's all right, yes, of course you did, yeah, yeah. He's going to go and check and t get their take on the meeting and get their view. And so don't expect it to be published overnight because he's going to go and do his due diligence. Now, I was really quite encouraged and refreshed by that, that actually... Though, and though we live in a time where there's a lot of fake news and such like, where people not only uh, are, you know, don't give any reference to their sources or where they get their information from, but actually there are still people who don't just take people's word for it. Luke told us that this is information in the first three verses of chapter one. This is information that was being circulated. And yet, he set out to establish and give a logical presentation of that which has happened. And so what you're looking at now is just a, a view of the uh, general outline of the book of Luke. Um, the first two chapters are the introduction, where we're at, um, and then um, we see, you might not be able to see that, it says Jesus and his mission, and then from chap that's from chapters 3 to 9a, and then 9b to 19 is the journey to Jerusalem, and then 19 to chapter 24 is the climax 
Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. And so there's a sense that at each block, at each section, um, Luke is zooming in and just a little closer and, and just a little closer more until you get to the last week. And, and that's um, six chapters, virtually. So, let's have a look at our text today. Uh, you know, it makes such a difference when your formatting is just stays the way you set it. <laughs> Praise God. All right. So, looking from verse 39, we're going to go to verse 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country. Now, uh, remember last week we um, uh, endeavored to kind of just consider certain factors that Luke was um, given to highlight in as he presents his information. And so, it's uh, as a reminder... These factors here, um, he will mention people specifically and by name, um, including um, their position or their status. He will make reference to actual places and actual time periods. Time periods are often measured by when a particular leader came to uh, position or power. That would be a reference point um, in the days of Herod the king. So they knew that it was within that time period. Um, so you'll see that reflected as we go through the text, um, just to help us. And so in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the whole country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord shall, should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed, that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And we'll pause there for a moment. So, we previously learned that Mary is related to Elizabeth. They've both had the uh, visitation from angels, or from an angel, Gabriel, to make a divine announcement of supernatural happenings. This is a burst of supernatural activity at a point when there's been 400 years of silence. It's clear that it, not only in the history of the nation, but as it will become more clear in the history of humanity, something unique and special is happening at this time. Mary has been um, uh, given instruction that she is to be the mother of the Lord, that she will 
conceived by means of the Holy Spirit. And her question was, how shall this be? I am a virgin. I've, basically, I've not slept with anyone. I've not known a man. And yet, the angel affirmed that by God's spirit she shall conceive and shall bring forth a child and call his name Jesus. In the same period, or a little before, the angel was appeared to Elizabeth. She who was past childbearing age, her and her husband, and had confirmed that she would give birth to a son, to Zechariah. And Zechariah was a little more dubious, and so was bound to silence until, as we'll see later, the baby is born. And so this supernatural activity is taking place. It's a historic moment in human history. And as we look through the text today, let us continue to consider the evidence that affirms and clarifies the fact that actually... This isn't just some hearsay, some myth, or some legend, but this is a divine intervention in human affairs. And that these individuals that are spoken of are genuinely unique. And so as we look, when Mary came and greeted Elizabeth, the unborn John the Baptist in her belly done a backflip. I'm paraphrasing. But he leapt in her womb. So not only did Elizabeth get a sense of acknowledgement, but the mystery is even the baby. We don't know how Elizabeth knew that Mary was pregnant. They were relatives. Maybe Mary had sent word of what happened and Elizabeth had sent word back. Maybe not. Maybe it was a revelation of the Lord. But the reality is that she knew. And not only did she know, but she declared with humility that that baby would be her Lord. To me, that the mother, sorry, verse 43, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So as a, an individual in that situation, in that moment, it was clear in her mind as to who the baby was that Mary was carrying. I find it extremely audacious when people in our own life and times want to question the testimony, the eyewitness testimony of those who were there at the time. I was... Uh, talking with the ladies at home the other day and watching a clip of, uh, 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 I, don't, I, I hesitate to call him a brother because with the heresies that he's sharing, I'm like, but he professes to be a Christian. He professes to be learned and scholarly. And he is one who questions the, the very deity of Christ questions the integrity of the scriptures and at one point he, he said something like uh, something along the lines to paraphrase almost as if well they were ignorant then but we know better now 
That's what I said. I'm like, what, what an audacity that he would be able to, 2,000 years after the event, feel that he has a much better understanding of what's going on in the, the time of the moment. When this is what's going on in the moment. And this is what Elizabeth thinks. And she's reaffirmed that upon retelling the story to Luke. There was a clear expectation to those in the know that this was the Lord who had been promised. Moving on from uh, verses um, 46, I think, to 56. And Mary said, and this is the first of our songs known as um, Mary's Magnificat. Uh, and that just basically means magnifies. Taken from the first line of the lyrics. My, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And so, in this first portion, her reflection is on the fact that she would be the, the person that the Lord would meet and use in this way. She recognizes that this isn't because she comes from a great family line, or because she's, you know, out here in the temple week after week, day after day going to church like a good Jew should do, so to speak. She recognizes that actually there's, uh, there's nothing about me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a lowly person. I live a very humble life. She's not from one of the royal families. She's not from the nobility, the great and good of the society. And yet she is the Lord's servant. And so often for us, we may feel very much like Mary. Who am I that the Lord would use me? I'm nobody special. I have nothing special to offer. And yet the Lord is just looking for those who are willing to serve him. That's all. And you might not feel that you're able to serve him. You might not feel like you have much to offer to serve him. One thing we see is that this is all of God. It's his work. Why? Verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things. Should the Lord use us in any way, may we never get to the place where we, we lose sight of the fact that it is only by his strength, only by his might, only by his power. Jesus in John 15 said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I used to struggle with that because nothing sounds very absolute. And like when you look around at life and you look at all of the, all of the things that godless people are achieving, you just have to go on um, Humans Are Wonderful Insta page. And see all of the things. And you're just like, 
but apart from me, you can do nothing. It seems like there's a lot going on. And the reality is twofold. There is a lot going on. Because even in a life apart from God, our very beings are held together by the word of his power. And even people that don't know God are fulfilling the creation mandate. To go forth and multiply and have dominion. And that remains until the Lord returns. But at the same time, how much of it is of eternal value? How much of it is of eternal value? You know that feeling when you're just kind of like, I'm not really going to make a lot of effort to do this thing if it's, if it's, it's not going to have any benefit. If it's not going to have any regard. If it's not going to have any value, it's not, if it's not going to mean anything. Like, why should I go to all of this effort to do this only for it to get filed in box 13? And yet in life, because we're so nearsighted and we only see what's in front of us, we don't realize that the majority of things that people are striving for in life are here today, Gone tomorrow. When I was growing up in the Lord, there were some brothers that wrote songs, some lyrics that would give me lyrical encouragement. Um, my favorite group coming up was a group called Commission. The Winans were close behind, but Commission was, they were the new school, cutting edge. Mm. And they used to have a song that they would sing. Only what you do for Jesus Christ will last. Everything else will fade like the future becomes the past. Lyrics! Come on. Only what you do for Jesus Christ will last. Now, when I say commission, some of you new school are probably thinking about them, them brothers that used to do um, garage, used to do grime. Uh, I see and, and bless C O double M double S I O N commission. Yeah, that man's banged as well. Come on. But I'm I'm going back. I'm going back. I'm going back. Hold tight, I see. Hold tight, Ali. Locked in. <laughs> We're on a radio show today. Private caller. Hold tight. Next aspect of her verse. Yeah, brother, come on. Zero double one, I see you. And his mercy is for those who fear him, verse 50, from generation to generation. And so her eyes turn from herself outward to the plight of God's people. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty and the thrones from their thrones, sorry, and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. 
and here we see this sense of God righting wrongs and leveling the playing field and advocating in particular for those who are poor, those who are lowly like herself, those who are weak. Notice, he has shown his strength, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, brought down the mighty from their thrones, and yet exalted or lifted up those of humble estate, filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And so there's a clear sense of the Lord caring for those for whom life circumstances have got the better of them. Those who are often excluded in society. You know, a few years back, I um, was doing some ministry training and there was a particular focus on ministry to deprived communities, to those who are the have-nots. And just kind of thinking about the context and the experiences of those in that situation, it was noted that very often for those who lived on housing estates, there was this kind of sense of hopelessness when crime happened. And it's not just because the crime was happening, but they knew if they endeavored to try and call the police, the call-out time would be forever. The police would just take their time. If it was a residential, leafy, suburban street, they'd be there in minutes. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> Housing estate, you might get a car cruise around, hasn't even got its blue lights on. And that's just an example of the way in which people from those communities are often alienated, denied rights and services, etc. And so, again, in keeping with Luke's point of view, he is one who is there for the underdog and demonstrating how the Lord has come. And you'll see this as we go through. Just keep a track of that. Who's in view in these situations? The lame, the leper, the poor. The and we see this here, but look. Look at verse 50, and I want to underline this. God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You see, God is concerned for the poor, and he is particularly concerned and especially concerned for those who fear him. Solomon once said, the fear of God is the beginning of what? He also said, the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. Mm. And so the fear of the Lord is where you, you begin to have sense, basically. You want to learn sense? Fear God. Yeah. And you see it in our society today. Oh, I could go off on one. Children don't fear their parents. 
don't fear their parents. Children don't fear the government. They don't fear their teachers. More time, they don't even fear the police. I see one uh, meme the other day, and the police, the three police went to arrest this guy, and he was just throwing them about. <laughs> Literally throwing them about. Ah, oh, tase you. <laughs> Popping it off. Throwing them about. This is the police. Someone's standing up, you're going to go to jail. They're shouting and watching. <laughs> He's like, what have I done? <laughs> Flinging the police, you know. People don't fear the police, but why? It's because they don't fear God. They don't fear God. They don't understand that there is an ultimate judgment that we will face. And when you live in the light of that, our wrongdoings become much more obvious to us. And, and the church has a responsibility in that regard as to why people don't fear God. Because people don't preach about hell no more. People don't talk about ultimate judgment. They don't talk about the fiery furnace. Mm. When I was coming up, that's all I heard. <laughs> Couldn't sleep at night. All I can hear the preacher. Judgment, come on, mercy gone. Stay in the ship, in the ark of safety. Listen, prop. Listen. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it's the fear of the Lord that looks like that the Lord looks for. Those who are humble and of contrite heart, Isaiah said, Amen. And so. Uh, one of the things to highlight, we're, we're talking about samples, is no surprise that as Mary receives this news and this confirmation of that which has been um, assigned to her, she then begins to sing from her heart in response to the Lord. And, and this song may well have been somewhat of a remix of a song that was in the, the national memory because all of the elements of Mary's song are found in the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel when she was unable to bear a child and she was being mocked and ridiculed and she was in the, 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 the temple and Eli's looking at her praying to the Lord asking for a child and he's like, you, you drunk woman, you're going you're gonna to carry on being drunk. She's like, no, 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 I'm talking to the Lord. I'm crying out to the Lord here, praying that he hears my cry. And when Eli understands the situation, the fact that she's barren and she's unable to have a child, he, he speaks by the, the unction of the Lord. And she's encouraged, it's confirmed that she will have a child. <clears throat> and these are the elements, and it's uh, not necessarily in, in exactly the same order as we'll see, but all of the elements of Mary's song, as one who could not have a child, not by reason of failed biology, but by reason of marital status, she, was, she wasn't married, she hadn't 
um, been intimate with a man. And so, by default, she couldn't have a child. She, in that situation, resonates with the plight of Hannah. And that song emerges from her heart. And so you can see on screen the, the various elements that are in common. Some of you are noting, you might want to take a picture of that. I'm going to go under the second page as well. But we see very similar themes. Poor versus the rich, hungry versus the fool, the rich empty-handed, and yet God fills the hungry. Um, the poor displacing the nobles or the rulers brought down. These are all themes that are in both of the songs. And that leads me to say, what kind of music are we meditating on? What, what comes out of you in those moments when your subconscious is trying to find expression? Because have you ever noticed that you'll be in a situation and not consciously thinking about a song, but then a song might come to mind or come to your lips. Catch yourself next time when you do that. Walking around the house and you start singing to yourself. Might be in a situation, just had a tough call. Finished your remote meeting with work and you're just vexed. What is it that's coming out of you in that moment? <laughs> a good brother of ours from back in the day, Emmanuel King, I know he's still in ministry, he leads prison, prison outreach network. He had this phrase, garbage in, garbage out. What we feed ourselves with is what will come out of us. Basic fact of life, right? Mary had this sown in her heart, this song of Hannah. And it may not have even been one that she really kind of related to on a personal level before this, but it was one she was familiar with. It's one she had meditated on. And in this instance, her presentation is a remix, echoing the same themes. May we be people who we have the word of the Lord hidden in our hearts when times are upon us, it's able to come out. You know, when you just, you're there and you have a tough situation and you just start to sing Jaira. Jaira, more than enough. Because you know the Lord is more than enough. And you know what it's like when that's an encouragement to you in that situation. Start singing of the Lord's promises, etc., etc. Moving on. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Uh, reading from verse 57, I, I realize the screen had disappeared. 
um, verse 59 now. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be, him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what kind of child is this going to be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And so they're in the temple. At this time, Zechariah still can't talk. And it's time to name the baby. It's the outdooring. And everybody's expecting that this is going to be Zach Jr. But Zechariah can't talk. And so Elizabeth speaks up. His name will be John. And yet, they didn't believe. And so, Zechariah at that point confirms. And a phenomena takes place. He's been unable to talk up until that moment. But at that moment, he is then able to now speak again. And was blessing God. And in view of this, it was clear that his speech impediment was directly related to the activities that were taking place and served as a, an observable, verifiable sign to those who witnessed it. It was another means by which the Spirit of the Lord was underlining the moment as being that of divine origin. As we go on. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and this is our second uh, set of lyrics. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has revisited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. To grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so, just to pause there. In that first instance, Zechariah starts with the view of the nation in mind, the view of their Jewish heritage in mind. And he calls to remembrance the promises to David and to Abraham. Second Samuel 7. 
The Lord promised to David that he will have uh, an everlasting kingdom. That one will always sit on the throne of David, being a promise of the Messiah to come. And likewise to Abraham, the Lord made promise that his offspring would be a blessing to the nations. And all the nations of the earth would be blessed by him. And so in this, not only was a promise made, as we see in verse 72, but also in verse 73, an oath. And you can read more about the promise and the oath in the book of Hebrews. Because God didn't just make a promise. They say that a promise is a comfort to a, to a fool. Oh. <laughs> but he swore an oath. You know, remember back in the days when you're offering your friend crisp and they're about to take it and they're like, I don't know, you know, what have you done to it? You know, I swear down, I ain't done nothing. You know, I swear down. This time you've coughed all over it. <laughs> this isn't that kind of oath. <laughs> but this is an oath that ultimately was sealed in blood. Covenantal oath. And God is faithful. And we see here Zechariah recognizing the fulfillment of that which was promised and that which was sworn. And then he turns his attention to the child who has just been born. And you, child, verse 76, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so he begins to prophesy the great things that will happen in the life of this child as this child grows to become an adult. And this isn't one of those kind of predictions that parents make. Oh, you know, this child is so amazing. <laughs> Just going to do great things in life. There's always a 50-50 chance. <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is that the point at which Luke is writing this, they've been able to look back and see John the Baptist and his ministry and the fact that this was fulfilled. So this isn't just wishful thinking. And this isn't them writing after the fact. Because Zechariah had shared this song in the moment, at the time, to all those who had witnessed. And so, we see that which is prepared for John the Baptist. Truly, he was the prophet of the Most High. Truly, he went before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. 
in the forgiveness of their sins as he was there in the wilderness calling the people to repent. To give light to those who sat in darkness and in the shadows of death. And we clearly stated last week that actually, just because it was Israel, just because they had great heritage, that didn't mean that they were walking in the light of God. They were in apostasy. And yet, John the Baptist fulfilled that. We're told that he grew and became strong in spirit, verse 80, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And so that summarizes the whole of his childhood to the point at which it, it mattered. And again, with uh, Zechariah's verses, we see references, samples from the Old Testament. Samuel 7, Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22. Isaiah 40, verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord. Malachi 4, regarding the, the rising of the sun. And we looked last week at how that was a, a prophetic um, announcement of the expectation that John the Baptist fulfilled. And yet the, the, the most key of those is somewhat almost the most subtle. The reference to Isaiah 9 verse 2, those living in darkness. And this reference really brings home the magnitude of this moment in human history. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Now, I mean, there are probably other references that you might think of. You hear a phrase like the shadow of death, and you think of Psalm 23. Yeah. Even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. These phrases as they would have heard them in their culture, would be like throwback triggers. And just in the same way we would think of Psalm 23, it would trigger them to think, but let's have a quick look at Isaiah chapter 9 and the significance as we get ready to wrap up. This is Isaiah 9, I'm looking at verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, Speaking of the, the nation of Israel. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in what? Darkness have seen a great what? Light. And those who dwell in a land of deep, what? On them has what? Light shined. Huh? Why? All right, let's see. For to us, a child is born. <laughs> Come on. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
them Christmas verses that we're familiar with hearing. All of that would have been triggered in their mind and more. As much as this is a, a prophetic announcement of the child, um, what was it that was on, um, the golden child was on, uh, on the other day? Eddie Murphy, remember Eddie Murphy and the golden child? <laughs> Kaz, what girl was this? I'm like, child. <laughs> How can you not know? I failed you. <laughs> He gets to the thing and he's like, ah, 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 ah. that was the moment, right? <laughs> the golden child from Genesis 3 at the fall of man, there was this expectation of the one, the golden child. And this is a, a prediction to that end. But look, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and what? Forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, it's no coincidence that this messianic birth announcement is in the same portion of scripture of the other very famous Christmas verse. Anyone know where that is? It's, it's verse 14 of which chapter in Isaiah? Isaiah 7, 14. You see, just two chapters before and in the same context of the same conversation, the Lord had stated his intention. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign that throws back to Genesis 22. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Mm. The prediction that a woman who's never known a man. Now, the term virgin was also used for a, a young marriageable maiden, one of married, married, marrying age, or um, one who may be um, uh, betrothed to be married, etc. Um, and so it was often used as a euphemism for young woman. As with God's strategy and method, when a prophecy is given, often it will mean something in the moment when it's given, but it will also have a later relevance and expectation of fulfillment. And this is the case. And yet, God stated his intention from the beginning. And this is another reason we know that what happened wasn't just some figment of someone's imagination. Someone just decided to make up. You know what? I'm going to make up today. Yeah. Let's make up a story where a, a, a virgin who can't have a child has a child without knowing any man. That sounds like a good idea, right? Yeah. I mean, when you look at the way in which Luke unfolded the story, there was nothing sensational about it. You would think if somebody had made that up, they would hype it up. 
And the virgin went to sleep and the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and she started to tremble in her sleep. It was very matter of fact. Very low key. No hype involved. You see, the intention of God had been made clear. Hmm. I have to finish this. In the chapters between chapter 7 and chapter 9, which, as you'd expect, is chapter 8, look at these verses at the end of chapter 8 in Isaiah. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their gods? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. You're hearing the, the, the echoes from Mary's song? And when they are, hung, are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and what? Darkness. The gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. And yet, John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord. He will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And this is God's intention that we would know this experience. That through Christ, we would know peace and light and hope. And that for all who will believe, for all who fear the Lord. And this isn't just based on a, a great ideology and a great philosophy. You know, at this point in history, Greek culture uh, was proliferating, covering the earth as a result of the Greek empire and a few hundred years before Jesus was Socrates and Plato names that we hear in academia, in halls of learning, and Socratic school of education, and Platonic philosophy. And by this time, their ideas had taken hold to the point where the Romans, who were now the world superpower, had taken on Greek philosophy, having taken over from the Greeks. So if you want to kind of put this into perspective as to what was going on in life and what were the other views and what, were the, what else was on offer, there was a lot of talk going on in life. And yet at this point in human history, God clearly intervened. And we are able to have confidence that it was so. And you might be discouraged that time, feeling as though, well, you know what, I've been really praying. 
and I don't see God answering my prayers. One of the things that this teaches us is to wait on the Lord. His timing is perfect. Amen? Let us be those who align ourselves with his word. Because God will always fulfill his agenda. Whether or not he fulfills ours <laughs> is actually much more dependent on whether we're aligned with him. Come on. We can be confident that God has and will always intervene. Jesus is Lord. God has intervened in history in revealing the Lordship of Christ. And the Lordship of Christ goes on. It is an eternal, everlasting kingdom. And so may we align ourselves with him. Put Christ first. Because as we give ourselves to his agenda, we cannot go wrong. And that doesn't mean we're going to get everything we want when we want. No, but we know that the Lord's will be done. Proverbs says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will do what? Give you the desires of your heart. And the key to understanding that is actually when the Lord is our delight and our heart is bubbling for him, then when he gives us the desires of our heart, he's basically giving us more of himself because he's our desire, he's our delight. May the Lord help us. Uh, let me invite the ladies as I prepare to pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, mercy, and loving kindness. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you are faithful. You are true. You have revealed yourself. Lord, we recognize that you are our only hope. And yet you are a sure hope. We can take all of our concerns and we can bank them on you. All of our hopes, all of our expectations. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, teach us to be a people who seek you, who wait on you, who trust you, who hope in you. Thank you, Jesus, for the amazing work that you've done in revealing God to us. From your very conception to your resurrection. And forgive us, Lord, for those ways in which we've allowed other ideas and notions, even those of our own heart, to have us in a place like Israel where we've walked in the darkness of our own ways because we've not been seeking you, because we've not been aligning ourselves with your word, but seeking other ways of success and fulfillment and happiness, respect and power. Lord, forgive us, I ask. 
Help us to be settled in you and aligned with your will. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.